happy Saturday. It is April 1st, 2072, and you are listening to Morning Meeting. I'm Ashley Baker in Kyoto. I'm Michael Haney, and I'm still here. God, Michael, it is April Fool's Day. Just work with me here. We're trying to be funny. <laughs> you know, but you're flipping me out. I'm the straight man here, okay? Second banana. That's where I'm comfortable. <laughs> Things are not always what they seem here on Morning Meeting. No, everything old is new again. I'm here in London. Michael is in New York, and we are here to talk about all things delicious and airmail related. Welcome to the show. Well, this, this, ladies and gentlemen, is not an April Fool's joke. We have a lot of exciting news coming out of our legal system, which appears to be functioning, thank goodness. Uh, first and foremost, Gwyneth Paltrow, after much debate uh, and quite a lengthy trial in Utah, has been proven innocent. She, It turns out she did not deliberately injure this gentleman. If she's guilty of one thing, it is ruining understated luxury fashion for the rest of us. I mean, uh, the amount of attention paid to her clothing and accessories during this trial was uh, pretty staggering, frankly. It was. There, there was something else in the legal system that happened this week too, right? Yes, it is a, officially a new national holiday in this country, the International Day of Our Lord and Savior, Stormy Daniels. Trump has been indicted at long last, Michael. What a oh, happy day. Yeah, and clearly there'll be much more happening in the days and weeks ahead. And it's going to be a busy week, and I'm sure in New York City, and a busy week. Much more about this now next week. Stay tuned. But we will have lots to discuss. It's going to be a very active week of politics in the U.S. And now that Gwyneth can go back to Beverly Hills or Brentwood or wherever she lives and just relax and get in an extra half day of skiing, we don't have to worry about that anymore. Thank goodness. If you haven't seen it, the Washington Post did this mashup of the five most kind of cringe-inducing moments, courtesy of the plaintiff's lawyer, who basically should be played by Kristen Wiig, where she's cross-examining Paltrow on the stand. She's like, how tall are you? She's like, oh, I'm five feet, but I'm thinking, I'm so jealous. You're small, but mighty. It's a little bit of Kristen Wiig combined with when Chris Farley did this character interviewing Paul McCartney on SNL years ago. Well, we've got much more coming your way this week and on this show. As Ashley reminds us, April Fool's, or as you call it, Ashley's Fool. She makes the jokes today, but we've got a great show. And I think we're both excited because our co-editor, Alessandra Stanley, is joining us to discuss the protests that are roiling France and challenging President Macron's government. And speaking of protests, Charles Bagley is here to discuss the one thing that all New Yorkers can agree on, their hatred of scaffolding. And finally, Alec Lebrano has a report from the French Riviera on how the city of Cannes is trying to reclaim its cool. Ashley, where do you want to begin? Can can do the can can? Of all the cities in the world, why is New York City the only one whose buildings go under scaffolding for years and years and years on end? We are going to answer that question for you today. And we have a very special guest to tell us all about it. We have Charles Bagley here to explain to us what's really going on with all this construction. He is a reporter at the New York Times and the author of Other People's Money, Inside the Housing Crisis, and the Demise of the Greatest Real Estate Deal Ever Made. Welcome, Charles. First of all, for those who have not been to New York and don't actually know what we're talking about, how much scaffolding do we really have in this city? Well, there is so much scaffolding that if you put it all together like train tracks, you could walk from Times Square to Norfolk, Virginia, which really kind of blows my mind. But it's an indication of just how prevalent it is and how we sort of block it out. It's everywhere. And it's at this point, considered normal part of the landscape, it really isn't. It obscures the building. It becomes a catcher for garbage. It snags your coats in the winter or even a handbag. It provides shelter for homeless people sometimes, but it's really an ugly abomination. And that's 
the sort of dual nature of sidewalk sheds. On the one hand, it's an eyesore, and on the other hand, it's a safety net. So, Charles, some New Yorkers know this and some don't, and but many of our listeners probably know. Why do we have these scaffolding sheds? How do we get here? And because it's started from a good place, but it's gone to a horrible place now. And what's the purpose of them, and why do we have them, and what's our way out of them? Well, sidewalk sheds are built over the sidewalk to protect people from, it could be new construction, things falling off the building. It could be repairs to a building or renovations. If you look at the Flatiron building today, there's scaffolding around the entire building. The building is empty. Its longtime tenant is gone, but they want to renew the building. But there are other reasons for them. And they relate to the age of the buildings in New York. A lot of buildings built 100 years ago were built with terracotta ornamentation. And they make the building look a lot nicer than some of these glass monoliths. And they were originally thought to be impervious to rain and the weather. But in fact, they can run counter to that. And so pieces of the building will fall off. So after a young woman died... In 1979, the city created a law that required certain buildings to have an inspection every five years of the facade to ensure that it was safe. And if it wasn't safe, the owners had to build a sidewalk shed to protect people. The problem today is that a lot of buildings, either because the fines are low or the cost of repairing a facade is so high, building owners either don't want to make the repairs and are willing to accept the cost of a shed as the cost of doing business, or they just can't afford to pay for it. There's a co-op in Harlem where the tenants bought the building from the city and they've had a sidewalk shed up for 16 years because it's been one repair project after another. They say that they inherited a lot of deferred maintenance. But in other situations, clearly the property owner is just doesn't want to make, go to the cost of repairing the building. I took a walk this morning just to confirm it on my block between 5th and 6th down in the village here, which is not a long block, it's just one city block. I have six sheds on my street, and some of them have been here more than to the consternation of my wife and other people in the neighborhood. One just across the street has been there about five, six years, and there's been like very little activity on it. But it's, as you say, it's just as they have this ability to just put it up and leave it there. But fortunately, as you note in your story this week, Mayor Adams and other city council members have started to push legislation that would sort of make building owners more responsive, right? Yes, it's not the first time that politicians have tried to speed up the process. The law that requires building inspections and ultimately sheds if they're necessary does not require them to take them down within a certain period of time. Part of the reason for this is that it takes time to hire a contractor or hire an engineer to inspect your building and determine whether or not it's safe and then to hire a contractor to make the repairs, to erect a shed. All of this can take time, but because there's no limit, it becomes an open-ended thing, and we're now just inundated 
certainly in Manhattan, but also in Brooklyn. It's very big in Brooklyn and it's obscuring our streetscape now. And I guess it's become so common that we don't even see it anymore. Just becomes another thing that you've got to dodge another part of the what makes it difficult to get from one block to another in New York City. Well, I see it. (laughs) I think we all see it. We're tired of seeing it. I know what you're saying. It's become just part of like just another nuisance on the street that you see that you just sort of navigate around. But yeah, it's the blight that unites, I think. And it is true that right now, I think we're in a special moment where both the mayor and members of the city council, the Manhattan Borough president, want to do something about this. Now, whether they're going to be able to do that is an open question, but there is enough momentum right now that hopefully something will happen. I mean, you don't see this in any other city in the country. I'm not saying you don't see sidewalk sheds, but you don't see them, as you mentioned, the number of them within a single block. They're just everywhere. But Charles, does that have something to do with the fact that New York City is taller than most? And so when bricks fall out of the facade, the effects of that can be so much more destructive? Well, it started in 1980 when Mayor Koch signed Local Law 10, which required building owners to have an inspection of the facade of their building that faces the street. And this was the result of a young woman getting killed. So all these buildings... 13,000 buildings in the city became part of a five-year cycle. So every five years, they've got to get one of these inspections done. And they hire an engineer or an architect. They do the work. The shed goes up. The shed comes down, supposedly. So part of the issue is that, yes, we have more tall buildings in New York City probably than any other city. These accidents seem to happen in clusters, not just one here and one there, but a couple of them happen at the same time and people get killed. There is a famous incident where a grandmother was walking her granddaughter past a building and a chunk of terracotta came flying down. It killed the child, injured the woman, the grandmother. As it turned out, an engineer hired by the building owner had filed a report falsely stating that it was a safe condition. The owner of the building was eventually fined and they sold the building. The engineer was prohibited from working in New York City again. But if your reliance is on an engineer or a professional hired by this building owner, it's not a guarantee. The city expects that An engineer or an architect would not risk losing their license by filing false reports. But when they're the guys paying you, you may cut some corners. And this has happened. Well, it's a fascinating story, Charles, and a bizarre New York phenomenon. So thank you for that. Thank you. Have a great day. Thanks. Take it easy. All right. Well, Michael, that gave us reason to hope. I like the optimism. Good man. Spring pruning. Maybe we'll prune back some of the sheds. I hope. I hope. I hope. I hope. So many questions, Michael, have now been answered. I feel better. I've learned something today. But I still feel mad as hell and I'm not going to take it anymore. But at least I feel 
something's going to start to change with some of this legislation. So clear out some of the clutter. Baby, take inspiration from your French compatriots and just take it to the streets, okay? I mean, they're protesting something that many of us Americans find equally ridiculous, which is the raising of the retirement age. But there's a lot more going on than just that. Alessandra Stanley, the co-editor of Aramel, who is currently stationed in the 6th arrondissement, is going to tell us all about it. Welcome, Alessandra. Bienvenue. <laughs> Hello. First things first, avec or sans garbage where you're staying? Avec. I'm in six, which is the fashionable six, or at least I thought it was. But this is a particular neighborhood that hasn't been cleaned up yet. Whereas one or two blocks away is the fashionable seventh. And that has been cleaned up. It's just various parts of Paris. None of it makes sense. But I had lunch in an area that was not full of garbage. So that worked out really well. Yesterday, there was a general manifestation, like a general strike. Was it difficult to get around? How did you find the city? Is it from a tourist perspective? Should we be avoiding this? Yes. No, there's a particular area near the Bastille, nice, appropriately enough, where most of these demonstrations take place. So if you can avoid those areas, you're fine. And in fact, there are people thronging the Louvre and people are all over restaurants and cafes. It's getting closer to back to normal. But even at the worst, if you weren't in the epicenter, you could possibly not know what was going on. So we're Americans. We tend to look a little bit askance at this notion that the retirement age should be 62 anyway. Are we wrong? Are we right? We're wrong. We're wrong. Who knew? No, <laughs> there's two things one, what we haven't realized, Germans actually work less because in France, you have to have worked for 42 or 43 years in order to be able to start getting a pension. So you have to work continuously from age 20 on for any of this to happen. So most people aren't eligible for to retire at 62 anyway, whereas the Germans, they start getting their retirement for 35 years of work. So it's a little bit of a misnomer, but nevertheless, it does look ridiculous. And it is sort of silly because we all know that all these populations are getting older and cannot be sustained. These pensions can't be sustained. But in this case, it's the way it was done more than what he's doing. Although what he was doing was bad enough or unpopular enough. There's been a fair amount of grousing that Macron is in this position because he doesn't have kids of his own. He doesn't have family. His wife is much older than him. He's a megalomaniac. How much is Macron to blame here? And how are the French looking at him differently these days? Well, they see someone who is just in the old school kind of imperialist president mode and are very frustrated with him. I happen to think that it's not that surprising that he is so inflexible because the French take it for granted, but to me, it's just astonishing that someone who was a teenager in high school fell in love with his teacher, who was 24 years older, married with three kids, and basically insisted against defying his parents, his family, his church, his schools, everything, in order to be with this woman with whom he still is. So if you could be that way when you're a teenager, it's possibly not surprising that you grow up to be overly self-confident and inflexible. That's my theory anyway. But you also note in your story this week, she's been curiously absent, his wife, in the last... She's usually quite often at his side and yet now seems to have disappeared, right? I think we call that, you're on your own, buddy. Even if she has a sympathy with that a lot of French people do, that the social system can't last forever, I'm sure she doesn't approve of this kind of high-handed way of dealing with it. So I think what we're seeing is her refusal to not back him up, but she doesn't want to be associated with this particular step, put it that way. So what should Macron do next? Well, I think 
<laughs> he should back off. But I don't think he will. I think they'll, they'll find some fig leaf, perhaps, of compromise. But I think he's just determined to finish out his term. He's a president, and so it, he can't be sort of removed the way you could a prime minister. So I think he's going to tough it out and say that my legacy is I reformed the social safety net in a way that allows France to modernize and continue. Of course, there's risk. And what is that risk? The risk is that his strongest opponent right now is Marine Le Pen, who is the right head of the right wing, very right wing populist party. And her polls keep going higher. The difference between them keeps getting narrower. He's getting more and more unpopular. And it could be an après-moi-le-déluge problem, whereas he gets his way. But then next time around, the French vote for someone who's going to undo it and represents a right wing that we find frightening, at least. So there's that. Well, one of his strengths is the economy, right? I mean, compared to Le Pen, who doesn't sound especially impressive on this matter, do you think that there's hope that if he manages to get himself out of this situation and turn things around, at least turn around his image, that he does have a future in France? Well, he doesn't have a political future because his term is over. So he'll have a future as a, the way Tony Blair has a future. He'll be on a speaking tour. I don't know how he's going to turn it around, but if he doesn't turn it around, then he is pretty much creating a situation where the right wing can take over. This is really aimed at working class people. So people who work at factories or work with their hands or whatever, people who are white collar workers, they don't even want to retire, right? Everybody's living to be 190. So people want to keep working. It's the people who for whom work is no fun, who are finding it difficult to accept the fact that the state is taking away something that they thought was a right and not just a privilege. So in some ways, is it too far a stretch to say that it's sort of like you could basically be creating Trump Democrat Republicans in France by pushing people out of where the, way, the center over to someone, as you say, who's going to undo it maybe in two, four years, right? That's the fear, right? Is that Le Pen is not nearly as colorful and bizarre as Trump, but she certainly represents those values. And on a, in a European context, it's even more alarming because you see what's happening with Putin and various countries in Eastern Europe and even in Italy now, they have a right-wing prime minister. So you don't want to push it that far. Given that Macron's kind of on his last gasp here as president, I mean, he doesn't really seem to have a natural successor. Have you heard any word of this? I mean, who's kind of next and running? Can you kind of give us an idea of what the landscape for après Macron ends up looking like? I don't know. No. No, because that's what happened with Macron is he came out of nowhere, right? He had this own little party and nobody took him seriously. And then the front runner had a scandal and had to drop out of the race. And he sort of became the centrist candidate out of nowhere. And I think that'll happen again. Trouble is, will centrist candidates be too associated with Macronism, right, to be tolerable anymore? I mean, it's you don't need that many votes for it to swing right. So there's all sorts of people in the wings waiting, but who knows which one will emerge. Well, Alexander, thank you so much for that commentary, analysis, <laughs> and point of view. We loved every minute. Okay, well, join me in Paris. Man, what I wouldn't give to have a steak free with that woman right now. Paris seems to be a mess, most of France, but yet our good friend Alec Lebrano has a story about one city in France that sort of look, is looking positive and trying to remake itself and go forward, right? Yeah, indeed. I mean, is that actually possible? Can be more than a convention town? Alec Lebrano reports. Alec is a writer at large for Amel and the author of an irresistible memoir called My Life at the Table, a recipe for delicious life in France. Highly recommend it. Welcome, Alec Lebrano. 
Alec, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Michael. Okay, so things are happening on the Côte d'Azur, specifically in Cannes, and I hope I didn't say it like a Chicagoan, but... <laughs> First of all, let's start with Can, as you report, is suddenly cool again, or at least trying to be. And I wonder if you could tell us, how did it go from being the scene of such glamour in so many minds of so many Americans to a place that had become kind of tarnished of late? Well, the Cote d'Azur has always been a place that people go hunting for glamour. I mean, Queen Victoria started the whole thing. She could be blamed. They went actually in search of sunshine, but they also went for hijinks and to escape the tedium of life in Victorian Britain. As it continued to evolve, I think it was really of Scott Fitzgerald and company who made the Côte d'Azur sexy and chic when suntanning became fashionable. That was new before, as you said, it was a winter holiday destination. And everything was going great guns. The allure of the Côte d'Azur was huge right up to after the war when the Cannes Film Festival started. In the early 50s, it was maybe the zenith of how chic it actually was with the grand hotels along the La Croisette, the seafront, being very prestigious places to spend a holiday. Then they built the convention center, the Palais de, de Convey which opened in 1982. And since the Cannes Film Festival only runs for 12 days, they had to figure out something to do with that bunker-like building right in the middle of the city for the rest of the year. And they succeeded. And what they did inadvertently is they turned Cannes into a real convention town. And so the blowsy, sexy, flesh pot beach town kind of got a little bit trampled by people who were walking around with badges pinned to their coats. And the glamour of the city was became a little bit tarnished. Well, it became a little bit tarnished, but now as you report this week, hope has arrived. Well, it's really interesting, Michael, because the famous, the most famous hotel in Cannes, probably the second most famous hotel in France after the Ritz in Paris, the Carlton just reopened after an epic renovation that cost 400 million euros. And they've redone the old gal. They actually call the hotel and they call her the old lady. The old lady's had a lot of work done and she looks great. And the hotel is now owned by the hotel company that belongs to the Qatari government. So their pockets would seem to have been very deep and deep. So yes, the, the premier property in Cannes has just been buffed and trust. And there's a new pool and a beautiful spa and all the rest of it. What I'm suggesting is that the really sexy place to be in Cannes is not right there in the La Croisette. It's a little further up the coast, still in Cannes, on the other side of the harbor, where there's a new hotel. It was designed by an Israeli architect and interior designer called Belle Plage. And that's where all the, how will we call them? I mean, people who actually are going there on vacation instead of going to conventions. And that's become their hen. And the rooms are beautiful. The views are beautiful. There's great beaches within walking distance at the hotel without having to spend hundred dollars to rent a sunbed for the day. Belle Plage is what's making, could really be making Cana a, a sexy destination again. And that's pulling because it's actually pulling that glamour creating clientele, which is what's necessary to get everybody else to want to come there. This is a hotel. How can I put it? I mean, it, it's a real people hotel. It's a place that I would send you. I would send friends there. I would stay there at the Dutch Hotel. And the old town of Cannes has enormous charm. It's called Le Suquet. And there's a fantastic market there. They're great day trips to do. I mean, they're two stunningly beautiful islands just off the coast of Cannes that only take about 40 minutes by boat to get to. 
you go over there for the day and you can find your own private little beach and bask as God made you in the sunshine all day long. They're great things to do there. It's a fantastic destination, having nothing to do with. So it's kind of a tale of two cities. I mean, the convention business is booming and it's important for that poor con. And it does keep a bellows going to the myth of the glamour of con. But almost by accident, the town has gotten a little bit edgy with this new property, which is attracting interesting, fun people who are not there to go to a convention. And I'm not dissing people go to conventions. I've had to go to lots of them myself. But any convention town, whether it's Las Vegas or Chicago, whatever it is, conventions are conventions are conventions. I mean, it's people on pumped up expense accounts, elbowing everybody outside of the way. And it changes the atmosphere. So Han now, as I say, it's a tale of two cities and it's kind of cool. I mean, it's fun. And if you know how to do it, it's a great place to go and spend a week. And from there, you visit all the other things that make the Côte d'Azur such a legendary destination. For those of our listeners who I'm sure will be inspired by your report, they're obviously going to look for a place to eat in and around there. Are there a few little gems you would recommend, Alec? Absolutely. There's a really charming, a great example of what's great or what's really good. I love the cooking of the south of France. I mean, I love vegetables, olive oil-based fruits, all that stuff. There's such a wonderful restaurant called Au Bons Enfants. It's like a three generation. It's been about the same family for three or four generations. It's in the old town. There's a 35 euro menu there with unbelievably delicious stuff like artichoke terrine with cheese and pancetta, fried squid with tartar sauce. Again, that restaurant is called Le Bons Enfants, which means the good children. And 35 euros is a really great prefix menu, three courses. And that's a major good buy on the Riviera where things can be pretty vertiginously expensive. Okay, Alec, last question because it's April. Everyone I know is panicking about where to go this summer, what their travel plans are, da-da-da-da-da. I know for a man who lives in Paris and lives in France and you have high-class problems, different than the rest of us, but what's on your list for the summer? Well, I've got a couple of places that are on my list. Like when I was a kid growing up in Connecticut, we did family vacations on Nantucket Island on the coast of Massachusetts, and they were, how to put it, I mean, I'm the eldest of four kids. They were nice family holidays. They certainly weren't extravagant. We'd ride our rusty old bicycles to the beach with sandwiches. The hotel had made every one slice of bologna and bread in a, a wax paper bag. I haven't been to Nantucket in ages. The hotel where I worked as the probably the worst waiter who ever, ever, ever worked in New England, the White Elephant, the famous hotel on Nantucket, has just reopened. So I'm going back to Nantucket to actually stay at the White Elephant, having been a hopeless waiter in its dining room a long time ago. And also to go and just see with enormous curiosity what the island has morphed into. I mean, it was my grandmother, both Tony and grandmother, had a ramshackle summer house there. And from what I've been told, every time I tell anybody that I'm doing this, everybody goes, whoa, get ready. It's not at all what you're talking about, Alec. It's changed a lot. So that's on the agenda. We're also going on a cruise to the North Pole which I think is pretty crazy, but bucket lists and stuff. And I think countercasting is always a good idea for a vacation. I like glamorous flesh pot resorts and delicious food. So why not put me on an icebreaker and something to the North Pole in August? And then we're also going to, for a week, we go to Sitges, a town south of Barcelona on the coast in Spain, which I love. And... I think that's pretty much it for the time being. I mean, if you live, we have a place outside of Uzes in the south of France 
And it's just so nice here. You all have to come and visit us because it's stunningly beautiful here. The asparagus just popped out of the ground this morning, so you can almost hear it breaking the crest to the ground or back to the village. And it was funny, the church bell rang this morning, and I said to the lady in the post office, why did the church bell ring? And she said, hello, asparagus. And I said, just, I'm not Catholic, so I said, just the Catholic Church greet the arrival of the asparagus? And she said, well, I have no idea. She said, I'm not Catholic either. But we greet springtime and we're happy that it's here. So it's just somebody just grabbed the board of the church. <laughs> so anyway, no, the summer, I like to spend time in the south of France in the country. And where we are is kind of, I think, the sweet spot destination, like west of the Rhone River in La Garde, which is G-A-R-D, the biggest town, as you said, and the biggest nearby city is named. It hasn't been gentrified yet. So it's way destination where I am and... They're fantastic. Neem is going through a food booming moment. There's some terrific new hotels that have opened here, and I'm planning to write about this little neck of the wood in France sometime very soon in airmail because I'd like to share it with everybody else. Well, it sounds divine. If you hear the church bells ringing, it's going to be heralding my arrival with along with Brooke knocking on your door. <laughs> while you're probably on an icebreaker going up to the North Pole. For those of you who find yourself on Nantucket this summer and you maybe encounter a very charming but a little befuddled waiter, just say hello to him. His name is Alec, and he's the nicest man you'll ever meet. Well, thank you, Ms. Janey. I should point out, though, that I do not have the Prince Lancelot haircut that I had when I was a dad waiter. <laughs> And the puka shells are gone. And I think I'm a little stouter than I used to be. But you might still recognize me. If you have a hunch, just say hi. He still has a twinkle in his eye. So That's true. That's true. <laughs> Alec, thank you so much for reporting on Can and giving us wonderful inspiration on where to go this summer. Thank you very much. Always a pleasure. Okay, take care. Hey, thanks. All right, Michael. Summer travel plans sorted. I might give Can a try. Who knows? Alec makes a compelling case. Actually, now I'm putting this out on the podcast, so we have to do it. But Alex Marshall and I have been plotting up a bivalves in Bretagne weekend. That's correct. We want to go eat oysters in Brittany and drink lots of cider and chat. That is my idea of a good France vacation right there. There we go. Put it on the books. Yes, indeed. All right. Ça c'est le weekend. What on earth are we supposed to do? How do we fill the time? Do we have to talk about succession? We can talk about it next time. Let's get a few episodes under our belt and then we can sort of like see where it's going, right? Okay, fine. We'll recoup. We'll recoup and regroup. But I mean, the television gods are smiling upon us between Ted Lasso and now it's the return of succession. I mean, we've got plenty of things to discuss. It's good. We do indeed. Do you want me to suggest anything? Oh yeah, well, while we're at it, might you be able to suggest something? I was curious, were you a fan? Are you a fan of the movie The Outsiders? Yes, I believe you are. But do you, you know me know, at all? Right? You love it as much as I do? I love it as much as you do. No. Maybe and the good more. news is We're in this week's fight, issue, it's the 40th anniversary of the film directed by Francis Ford Coppola, based on the 1967 novel and helped launch the careers of some very young actors at the time, Tom Cruise, Diane Lane, Patrick Swayze. And we've got some beautiful and never before seen photos from the making of the film, which are excerpts from a new book called The Outsiders, Rare and Unseen. So check that out. But second of all, the thing I was going to recommend, and I'm kind of digging it, it's called The Big Door Prize. Have you seen this yet? Uh, I have not, but it sounds like a new version of The Price is Right. <laughs> Prove me wrong. It's on Apple TV. The first episode just dropped this week. And I find it sort of to be a cross between Ted Lasso and Shrinking with a little bit of sci-fi thrown in. And it stars Paul Dowd as this teacher in a small town where a machine shows up 
just happens to show up in this local grocery store, but it reveals people's true life potential. It's a great premise, clever hook. One of the creators is the guy behind Schitt's Creek, so it's got that kind of touch. But I've only seen the first episode, but I'll be back, and it's called The Big Door Prize on Apple TV. I would suggest it, especially because I'm just going to say, I'm feeling a little worn out on Ted Lasso. Maybe this is tapping a different vein. I'm not sure. Cause for concern, Michael. We wish you all a wonderful weekend. Thank you so much for joining us, as always. Absolutely. Michael, will you please read us out? Morning Meeting is produced by Airplay Productions and edited by Jesse Cannon. Our co-editors are Graydon Carter and Alexander Stanley. Our chief operating officer is Bill Keenan, and our deputy editors are Ashley Baker, Chris Garrett, Nathan King, Julie Vitale, and Ash Carter. Our CMO is Emily Davis, and our music supervisor is Randall Poster. Our theme music is The Cute Monster by the Buddy Colette Quintet. A new edition of Airmail is published every Saturday, so please subscribe and enjoy all of our stories on airmail.news, which we update every day. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at Airmail Weekly. We We will be back here next Saturday with another edition of Morning Meeting. In the meantime, be sure to subscribe at Spotify or Apple Music. But most of all, thank you again for joining us.